the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, I'm Lionel Burney, and in this episode of the Cycling Podcast, you're going to hear a conversation between me and Daniel Freeb. Because a couple of weeks ago, on the Giro d'Italia rest day in Abruzzo, Daniel and I sat down with a pre-prandial glass of white wine to talk about a project that has, just like a fine wine itself, taken a number of years to mature. Daniel's biography of the German cyclist Jan Ulrich is published this week. It's called The Best There Never Was, and it's been years in the making. There was the research and writing that goes into any book project, of course, but also a sense of responsibility to the subject, who has had some very well-publicised difficulties with depression and alcohol use in the years since his retirement. It's an intriguing subject because Ulrich burst onto the scene in 1996 when, as a relative unknown, he finished second in the Tour de France behind his telecom teammate Bjarne Rees. The following year, still aged only 23, Ulrich won the Tour by nine minutes, and it seemed as if the sport was in for an era of total domination by the German. After that, though, Ulrich's career did not run smoothly. There was an era of domination, of course. Lance Armstrong came back from cancer and won the Tour seven times in a row. Ulrich was the nearly man of that era, second to Armstrong three times, third once, and fourth once. And when the American retired the first time round in 2005, Ulrich looked set for a battle with Ivan Basso for the right to assume Armstrong's crown. Except neither he nor Basso got the chance because both were revealed to be clients of the blood-doping doctor Ufemiano Fuentes, and they left Strasbourg in disgrace on the eve of the 2006 Tour de France. Ulrich never raced again. I was really interested to hear from Daniel about the process of writing the book, and first of all, why he wanted to write about Jan Ulrich. Well, Daniel, why did you want to write a book about Jan Ulrich? Straight to the point, Lionel. No preamble. No preamble. Good to see you too. Good to speak. Um, why a book about Jan Ulrich? Well, this is a long, probably a long answer, complicated answer. As it was a complicated process to write this book, I have to take my mind back to when I decided to do this in 2015. I'd written a few books in the years leading up to that. And well, as a few of us had, you know, it was a, it was a fertile time, wasn't it, for cycling publishing, particularly in the UK, there was a big appetite for it. Um, Jan Ulrich was, at that time, I mean, he'd well, he disappeared from view in 2006 when he disappeared from the Tour de France, on the eve of the Tour de France, he'd effectively left the Tour de France in disgrace before it had started. So in 2015, he'd been, well, it'd been nine years since that had happened, and he'd really disappeared from public view um certainly as far as non-germans were concerned there were a lot of legal issues arising from what happened in 2006 but not that much information about what was going on with Jan Ulrich so there was a mystery there to unpick what had happened with his life what had happened I mean from the start this was going to be the story not only of Jan Ulrich but of German cycling of this spectacular boom and then bust which we'd all witnessed and we'd all it all left us well it left us all open mouthed really because while in other countries the sport's reputation had suffered um, as a result of doping scandals in 
Germany, everything had really been obliterated, turned to absolute dust. All the teams had gone. The races had almost all gone. And I don't mean just road races. I mean the six-day scene, which was a mainstay of cycling in Germany, had almost been obliterated as well. So that needed to be unpicked, what had happened in Germany, why that reaction had happened in Germany. But then going back to why Jan Ulrich... Um, you know, I sort of got into cycling as a teenager in the mid-90s. There was no connection with cycling at all in my family. And the, the main connection for me was, well, it was an intersection of, of various interests, geography, foreign languages, sport. And 2000, sorry, 1996, 97, 98, those were the years when I was first getting interested in cycling. In 1996, Jan Ulrich appeared from nowhere, really, and finished second in the Tour de France behind his teammate, his telecom teammate, Bjarne Ries. And then 1997, um, I was on holiday in Italy, actually, and I was watching the tour. I sort of would take an hour or two out in the afternoon, and I would watch with my dad, although my dad wasn't that interested in cycling, and we saw... Jan Ulrich win in Andorra and at 16 or 17 you're incredibly impressionable and it was as I say it was really the second Tour de France I'd properly watched and it just seemed like this absolutely momentous moment when Ulrich went away in Andorra and crushed everyone and by today's standards 23 doesn't sound that precocious by the standards of the last few years but um, for a 23-year-old to do that was extraordinary. And even then, without me knowing the context of, you know, at 17, I'm not even sure I n- knew that the record of Tours de France um, was five, that, you know, Moncatil had got five, you know, had got five. But even then, I think I immediately assumed, deduced, that this guy was going to win lots of Tours de France. He, he was going to mark an era and I think only later did I realise that that's what a lot of people were saying, that's what a lot of very qualified people were saying, um, including the likes of Eno. I think Eno said that he was going to win 10 Tours de France. And that didn't seem that outlandish. It seems outlandish now. Then he went on, well, he went on to win that Tour de France by nine minutes. And it was a really significant Tour de France because, I don't know if you'll agree, but it was the last Tour de France where... It was last Tour de France, certainly for the next 20 years, when I think people watched with kind of untainted, unvarnished, uncaveated awe at what they were seeing. The the first thing that came to people's head wasn't a question mark when they saw an incredible exploit. It should have been because doping was rampant at that point. But the wool was only really pulled out of people's eyes a year later with Festina. So it was the last tour that I think people watched in that spirit of being just flabbergasted by what they were seeing. And, um, and you know, the imagery as well, again, when you're 16, 17, everything's more vivid, everything's more powerful, but this, you know, this fresh-faced, ginger-haired, freckle-faced um, young guy that no one really knew that much about in this beautiful, clean, white national um, German national champion's jersey, um, and I may or may not have known that he was from East Germany and this was not that far out from the unification of Germany and he was a symbol of the united germany and you know it was it was it was vivid it was compelling it was powerful it was moving and it carried the promise of as i said redefining the sport of cycling for the next however many years and and that i never really lost that 
Um, although that or although I went on not much, not long later, four years later, I was covering the sport. Um, and, and Ulrich was a bit of an enigma for most people because German is not a commonly spoken language among you know, the rest of Europe. So everything that Ulrich said was always through a filter. He wasn't very articulate either, particularly. So we never really knew that much about him. And then, of course, he was completely overshadowed by Armstrong. But to me, and I think to a lot of other people, the sort of affection, the awe, the interest, the intrigue, the mystique, they they remained. And there's also that thing which, you know, you see in a lot of sports and you probably see in other domains like music. When someone does something absolutely want that they offer a glimpse of something transcendental prodigious incredible and it's a tantalizing glimpse because it's never repeated and that was the case with Ulrich that makes such a magnetic story and um, people love those stories and it, it applies to a certain extent to people you know when when sports people or musicians when they die early when they die prematurely as well it happened with with Pantani people are left with the longing for what may have been and that's really the story of Ulrich's career yeah I do agree with you about looking at the 1997 Tour de France through innocent eyes I mean it was the last one I watched before I started working in cycling at a magazine and it, I actually went to the tour with my dad that year and we went and watched the time trial in Saint-Étienne um, and we stood on the climb and I'm interested to know what it was about Ulrich that appealed because I was I went completely the other way like the, I went for the romantics you know Vironk and Pantani who kind of danced up the climb losing time and Ulrich came up the climb in the saddle looking like a machine and he ticked all of those kind of stereotypical German robotic almost you know the the German football team that always wins on penalties the sort of relentless machine like quality and I suppose, again, having watched the Olympic Games and sort of absorbed some of the cynicism of perhaps the British coverage towards the East German and Soviet teams, there was a sense of the sort of East German machine sort of infecting Western European sport, pure Western European sport. So it's interesting to me that you went for the kind of the power and awe of Jan Ulrich while I was kind of with the, the, the sort of, you know, dandelion pickers. <laughs> um, you know the the Veronks and the the Pantanis, who, like I say, just to me, you know, they they look like Tour de France cycling, and Jan Ulrich almost didn't look like a cyclist in in those first couple of years. He was he was bigger, he was just awesome power, but in a different way to Indurain, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think in those first couple of years, so in '96, when he finished second, '97, there was a litheness about him. There was a, I mean, he was certainly very light. He finished those tours at about 69 kilos, and that was a weight he would never get back to. Um, and he was he was elegant. I think he was elegant. And when I go back now and watch Andorra, I see less of that elegance than I think I saw then. He does look, you know, he's powerful. But you can also see it, it sort of foreshadows the sort of lumbering diesel engine that we saw later when he was a little bit overweight. You can kind of see how he turned into that. But at the time, I just saw this fluid, this beautiful, aesthetically um, very appealing athlete. And again, you know, the imagery and the intangibles. We've talked about this before, the the way someone's name rolls off your tongue, um, maybe the fact that he was mysterious. And 
the the story also changed very quickly with all the the story the narrative changed from this robotic taciturn inscrutable you know dominant figure who was who was going to win the tour for many years to come within months almost within weeks in fact the story became something completely different when he started to put on weight in the winter of well, the 97 to 98 winter. He almost became a comedic figure, a tragicomic figure. And, and that was really the narrative for the rest of his career as far as a lot of people were concerned. So as you say, Daniel, in 2015 when you came up with this idea, pitched it and got a publishing deal, Jan Ulrich was kind of off the radar. But in the years that it's taken you to research and write the book he's kind of emerged as a public figure again and um, he's had sort of public difficulties hasn't he i mean we've talked on the podcast about how long this book has taken to get to the point um, where it's ready to be published i mean what what was the beginning of the process like and why did it take you so long to write the book i mean that's not a, that's not a dig books take a long time to research and write properly um this but I think is going to be would, a long answer i think you would say this could be it, a seven year a seven long, year long answer it took longer than you'd anticipated at the time yeah it did i mean i started off at the rate the rhythm i sort of had been going out with other books you know i wrote an eddie Merz biography that it was supposed to take well it was supposed to take a very short amount of time i think nine months or so and then because another British journalist William Fotheringham was writing one at the same time. The publisher moved it forward three months, and um, and 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 as I say, it was a very prolific time for cycling books in the UK. And there were publishers that did want them, and they wanted them quickly. Uh, so in 2015, I started, and I started well. Uh, you know, I went to the first person I think I interviewed was Lance Armstrong. I went to Texas and spent a day with him playing golf, which was which was fantastic if we had a fantastic or he gave me a fantastic interview and um you know he's a big figure in the book i mean which will make people wince some people won't like it but his recollections his storytelling is really pitch perfect both as a reflection of him who he was who he is n- now less so because the interview was in 2015 just um, tell me about the golf i mean did you uh did you pull your punches in the golf to ensure that he would open up a bit or oh, oh bad luck oh, so i seem to have missed that one from six inches lance your hole no no it was a quite it was quite a close game um i didn't play much golf these days and back then he was playing 250 days a year i think um it was actually a period, it's interesting to see the transition he's gone through in terms of his relationship with cycling, because I remember on our game of golf, I was asking him, you know, how much time he spent at his bike shop, Mellow Johnny's, and I remember him saying something like, oh, I never go there. And I said, why not? And he said, well, I'm, I might meet a cyclist. Um, and that I think that reflected, you know, his embarrassment at the time. It was still, it was fairly soon after the, the whole Oprah Winfrey, you know, and the meltdown that followed. So, you know, I started that spring in 2015, did a lot of interviews, really, you know, interviews that were necessary, very necessary, but people who had not spoken at all since 2006, since Ulrich had been exposed or not spoken in any great depth. Rudy Pevenage, his director sportif at Telecom, he'd given a couple of interviews with Lakeep, but and there was a lot that he hadn't said. He was also quite cagey with me, but... Um, Anyway, that spring, I, I sort of knocked off, I, you know, I might, might have had a list of 60 or 70 people and I maybe knocked off 20, 30 of them. And then also that summer I moved to Berlin 
um or, or i i went to berlin for the first time for two or three months to because i well i wanted to, to change a few things in my life but i also i also realized it would be really good for the book and it was necessary for the book i'd never lived in germany before i spoke a level german and but i hadn't really spoken it for years and i knew that to get under the skin of this subject matter that i would have to speak german you know there were a lot of people for example um, Ulrich's first coach Peter Becker you know certainly didn't speak English and there were a lot of people older people who you know for whom it would be necessary to speak German and also just to understand the culture and understand you know how people live in Germany how people see themselves in Germany so yeah and I went through that summer and late late summer again with a few months in Berlin and it was it was going it was going along quite quickly um but I got to sort of October and November and the book was due in December or January. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, I started working as a journalist in 2001 and straight away I found it very, very difficult. And I had a what in layman's terms would be described as a big, big breakdown straight away, really, in a few months in. And I'd never really recovered from that um, in spite of, you know, working in lots of different ways to to write what was wrong um you know and i i I found it incredibly incredibly difficult to meet deadlines i couldn't meet any deadline because of because of health issue you know i'm loath to just put it down to sort of mental health i mean it was it was a kind of trauma and i'd never really i'd never got over that but i'd sort of hidden it and i'd managed to build a career in spite of that i had enough you know i could speak foreign languages like there were aspects of the job i could do um in spite of not functioning very well and this had gone on for years this had gone on for over 10 years and i'd written books in the meantime and they'd broken me they'd absolutely broken me you know i'd be up until two o'clock in the morning getting up at six in the morning um and still only managing to write what a normal person would write in you know a couple of hours and i as i say that this had gone on for years and years and i could I'd got to the point where I realized this couldn't continue. You know, I was in my mid thirties and it was just going to continue if I didn't sort it out. So I just pressed pause and I decided that I was still going to write the book, but it also, you know, it was a delicate story. It was a sensitive story. I, I wanted to do it justice. I wanted to do him justice because it's a big responsibility writing about someone's life and someone who'd been through an awful lot and it it wasn't fair to him to half ass it for want of a better word it wasn't fair to the story it wasn't fair to readers as well so basically decided that the book was going to happen but it was only going to happen when i felt that that i could do it some justice the problem was that that process then took well if you'd asked me then i might have said it would have taken 6 months it took 6 or 7 years the 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 other dimension to that is that you know as things were improving for me and I was sort of dealing with some of the issues and getting to the point where you know I could work on it again parallel to this Jan Ulrich was having a lot of issues in his personal life and this culminated in 2018 in what I think a lot of people are aware of this awful summer of complete self-immolation with you know, problems with alcohol, drugs, well publicised. He spoke about them in himself. And as I say, as just as I was getting to the, the point where, you know, I was maybe a few months away from finishing the book, 
it became really really sensitive and I, I had I had really mixed feelings about continuing with the project despite my absolute determination to see it through for, just for myself really as well but I felt like I had China in my hand really and I didn't know how to how to approach it sensitively I had to work out how to be tactful how to well not further imperil him because you know I mean you know this yourself Lionel to a large extent once you write a book and you put it out into the world you lose control of it and I was very aware as well that this was a book that might be you know if it wasn't going to be translated in German um, things would be picked up in the German press and I'd seen over you know three or four years of working on the book how things that you know had played out in the media had possibly possibly I couldn't be sure about how they possibly affected him and his mental health they'd certainly not helped him and and I couldn't you know my, my intention when I started this project was what my motives were were compassionate really and that that's my default position about that generation I mean it's my default position I think it's yours as well as a, as a journalist I mean I, I'm not I'm kind of loath generally to judge sports people and their morals and um, I, t- I try to have quite a light touch around around that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, that I'd set my stall out t- to write that kind of book and to restore some honour in a little, in a certain way because the, there were riders from his generation who had been rehabilitated and there was an, there was an injustice to that, the way they'd been rehabilitated yet he was still living in this kind of exile where he couldn't, he couldn't step back out into the public domain and the only reason he couldn't really was because he didn't have the words, he wasn't articulate enough, he wasn't, um, he didn't have the gift of the gab, he, he was embarrassed, he probably felt a little bit of shame. So I had wanted to restore some sort of dignity to the story in a way and I could hardly well if I was going to do that I had to be very very scrupulous about the way I was going to going to do it and I couldn't you know to to say to put a book out there and say well okay this is wrong this is maybe a bit insensitive but I personally as the writer of the book wasn't feeling great at that time so you have to let me off for that that it didn't really it wasn't really gonna gonna fly The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. As you'll probably know by now, Super Sapiens monitors your blood glucose levels in real time so you can manage your energy resources better, train better, recover better and perform better. You can learn how to turn the data into lasting positive behaviour changes that allow for better glucose control and in turn for better performance. If you want to find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. I just wanted to pick up on something you said about Ulrich's career. I mean, he reached this incredible height in 1997. He won the tour by a huge margin. 
and it did look like he would win multiple tours in a row. Um, and yet, 12 months later, the vulnerability that I had wished to see in 97 was incredibly apparent. Yes, it, it was It was incredibly apparent. And some of it was very understandable. I mean, we, we always talk, don't we, Lionel, about when someone wins a tour for the first time, there's always the, the debate and the question. That's just some wine being poured. Did <laughs> anyone fine. wonder? Um, th- there's always the question how they're going to deal with it. And we always assume that it's difficult. We always talk about the same things. We, we talk about them going to parties, dinners, ceremonies, that kind of thing. And that it's always a difficult period to to negotiate. And it was for Ulrich. It was it was very very difficult. I think for him. And he was fated. I mean, he was the first German Tour de France winner. Shortly after the Tour de France in 1997, Der Spiegel, which is one of the biggest news magazines in Germany, voted him, or there was a there was a survey that they conducted, he was voted the greatest German sportsman of all time, having just won one Tour de France. Now, there was a bit of recency bias in that because Steffi Graf had just had a terrible year, Boris Becker had had a bad year, Michael Schumacher had had a bad year. Nonetheless, that gives you an idea of the sort of Ulrich fever. The other thing that happened in 1997 after he won the Tour was that for the rest of that summer he won pretty much every race he took part in and this even included races like the Hamburg um, one day race which was a not a course that was suited to him so he just kept winning and what then started to happen even late in that season there were a couple of races that he went to and he didn't win and he and he got booed a couple of races for not winning so you know I think he, he got a sense really quickly of how big the whole thing was and and I think it stressed him out he was he he wasn't someone that necessarily enjoyed the spotlight you know he went to the he did a lot of criteriums after the 1997 tour and Jens Hepner his teammate um who would go with him to these criteriums you know told me stories about how Jan would kind of be hiding behind Hepner, you know, hiding from the crowds, and and there was this there was an event at Hepner used to own a cheese shop, and there was they they organised this signing at the at the cheese shop, and they told the local police that fifty people would come, and it was and then five thousand people turned up, and Ulrich had to like hide under the table, and all of these things, you know, they created a lot of stress, and then in the winter whether it was because he was enjoying himself or whether he was eating and not training as a reaction to the stress. No one really knows. Lots of people had different views on that. He did start to put on a lot of weight. Now, he'd put on quite a lot of weight in the winters, in some of the winters prior to that, but never, I mean, again, I sort of canvassed various opinions on this and his coach, Peter Becker, told me that he put on over 20 kilos. That was never, that wasn't reported at the time. I think it was more like, it was 12, 15 was the sort of ballpark figure. I mean, you could see it, couldn't you, Lionel? When he, when he showed up to, whether it was the team presentation or the first race of the season, it was it was very obvious that he wasn't just slightly overweight. And his results showed it as well. And and then he he would get, well, this was, a, this was the first time it had happened, but then the pattern was just repeated almost every year. He would be overweight, then he would get ill. And then in the spring... 
he would go on these incredible training purges, binges, where he would, you know, I heard so many stories from people of how he would do these 200 kilometer rides on just an apple, and this would go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And when you hear it now, it's quite obvious when, it was quite obvious why he couldn't compete with Armstrong in the tour, because, you know, it wasn't good training, it wasn't good quality training at all. It was purely to lose weight. And generally speaking, it, it worked in the sense that, I mean, you know, Lionel, when you would show up to the tour, the tour presentation, everyone would be sort of wowed by how thin he had managed to get. He still wasn't necessarily as thin as Armstrong, as lean as Armstrong, but a transforma- transformation had always occurred in the previous six or eight weeks. Ulrich's weight was a story, though, right from the start. I mean, I remember, I don't want to say which newspaper it was because I couldn't honestly say which paper it was, but one of the European papers had a kind of cartoon, a square with... Um, uh, each of the sort of main riders, you know, whether it's Viron, Pantani, whoever, you know, their winter training, they were all on their bikes and the bottom square was Ulrich eating some Black Forest Gatto. And so it was already a kind of caricature that Ulrich spent the winter eating. And that was, yeah, that would have been 98, 99. And, um, well, 98, the tour, he was the favourite. He was in contention until... Uh, multiple factors you know the um you know cold weather maybe caught up with him back-to-back difficult days and you know um once the race had got into the mountains he blew up spectacularly didn't he and marco pantani saved the tour de france after the the festina doping scandal and again my sympathies swung completely the other way uh, i saw ulrich having a hard time and you know finishing well down the tour over for him and then watching him kind of fight his way through the remaining stages and, and, and kind of restoring some kind of pride and dignity and, and what have you. And my sympathies completely um, switched to Ulrich. Mm. Um, but, I mean, it was a spectacular unravelling from 12 months previously, wasn't it? Yes, it really was, uh, as you say, from a position of everyone thinking that there was there was no one who was going to even come close to competing with him to... Well, finishing second in that Tour de France. And then what no one could have foreseen at that time was Armstrong looming in 1999. And Armstrong was the the rider who was going to define, he was going to condemn Ulrich to the the role and the image of also ran perennial bridesmaid um, for the rest of his career, really. But this is where it gets interesting, isn't it? Because Armstrong had come back. He'd had a very solid welter at the end of '98. And then one by one, all of the potential contenders for the Tour de France seemed to just fall out of contention. I mean, Pantani got busted for a high hematocrit at the tail end of the Giro, so he was out of contention. And Ulrich was basically having troubles of his own and was unable to start the Tour in 99. Yes, Lionel. And, well, in fact, the, the book is divided into two parts and part one begins... Sorry, part two begins with my meeting with Armstrong in... Austin because that was the real watershed for Ulrich that was when the narrative well the narrative had already started to flip really in 1998 but from that point you know there, there was the reality of a guy who was still the sec he was the second best cyclist in the world yet he was seen as a disappointment as someone who was not fulfilling his p- potential and some of it was true in the sense that there was definitely a degree of laziness I mean Bjarne Reese, I interviewed Bjarne Reese for the book and and he quite explicitly said to me that look riders in that era were lazy because EPO was so powerful the drugs were so powerful that they could get away with being lazy I mean by the standards of of any normal person 
it certainly, you know, it couldn't be qualified as laziness. They were still training every day. They were still, you know, going out for four or five hours at a time, but they were certainly doing nothing like, making nothing like the kind of sacrifices that a lot of the pro riders are making today. And, the well, with 1999, the, the tone was set there. The first... The first head-to-head meeting of Armstrong or it was going to be 2000 and um, you know Armstrong said to me that even he having won in 1999 was was pretty sure that Ulrich was going to be better than him in 2000 and in his training rides leading up to the Tour de France he was well he was with Kevin Livingston um, quite often and he was saying to Livingston things like oh I'm going to have to work on my descending because Ulrich and Pantani um, because Pantani had missed 99, of course, as well. They were going to be back, and Armstrong didn't think he was going to measure up. He, I mean, as he put it to me, it was like, oh, the cancer guy, we, we let the cancer guy win, but now the real guys are back in 2000. And, of course, the reality was that, well, they got to the first big mountain stage of 2000, which was the stage to Hortecam. And to me, Lionel, I don't know about you, but that was definitely one of the most shocking moments of the Armstrong reign. And I talked about how memorable... Ulrich at um, in Andorra was, but Armstrong in at Hortecam, and, and just the way he he absolutely obliterated um, Pantani and Ulrich and and the others as well, and just the the, the Blitzkrieg as I call it in the book that his this you know 110 revs per minute cadence and just this sort of flash of metal and 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 legs and flesh and just going away in a in a in a blur up this climb up this you know very gloomy it was a very gloomy day um disappearing into the mist and that was a really powerful image and he really well he had left them behind def- definitively hadn't he Pantani and Ulrich he had and I mean Ulrich was the contender not the champion for a couple of years I mean Armstrong was as they said on another planet uh, but they were all on the same planet really weren't they I mean Ul- Ulrich I mean what what was the what was the the reality of uh, Ulrich and and EPO at that point? Well, what I didn't really go into in the book because I don't have the expertise is this question of who reacted best to the drugs. Um, this is something that I know Jonathan Vortis has spoken about a lot. Um, you know, there are various different. Well, there are, there's a wide variety of opinions on that. You know, it, it, someone with a naturally high hematocrit were they at a natural disadvantage? because they couldn't they couldn't use a lot of EPO to boost their level up to 50 I'm not sure the the reality is that Ulrich had he'd had his induction to EPO the well subsequent um, expert commission investigation found out or there or, or put their best guess at sometime in 1996 before his first Tour de France and this is what also the telecom soigneur Jeff Dont um, who wrote a memoir in 2007 this is what he'd said that he I think um, he claimed that he was the first person to give um, Ulrich EPO or he was certainly one of the the first to administer it to Ulrich and and it was then, it was before his first Tour de France. Um, What they were doing thereafter, you know, I heard various stories that there was a a team talk before the 1999 season, so the first season post-Festina, they were told not to bring any drugs to races, but this was a sort of veiled... Um, warning and the subtext certainly some riders took it to mean you can carry on doping but just keep us out of it or don't do anything dangerous um, again that's that that's me extrapolating um, that, that then that's not necessarily the exact words that were used by the team management but 
the the bottom line was I think they continued to dope and Armstrong continued to dope. I mean, we know a lot about Armstrong, um, Armstrong's doping, how he transitioned at certain points from EPO to blood transfusions and then and then back as well. And there's a lot of detail about this in the book. I mean, there's a the, post 2006. Um, well, I mentioned that Jeff Dont's memoirs came out in 2007. This really caused uh well, there was already this apocalypse that happened with 2006. Ulrich's reputation completely wiped out when he was identified as being a client of Eufemiano Fuentes, the Spanish gynecologist in Operación Puerto. But then when Dont's memoirs came out in the spring of 2007 with extremely damning allegations, the the dominoes just started falling for the whole telecom organization which had been going since the early 1992 the team had started and riders started confessing and there was a, a week where almost all of the stars of that Tour de France team in 96 97 one after the other Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday um, they all called press conferences or gave interviews in which they said look it's true we did it we doped and then the doctors, um, Andreas Schmidt and Lothar Heinrich, had been at Telecom throughout, and Heinrich was still on board at what was then, or what what was soon to become Team Columbia and then Team HDC. And in fact, after 2006, he'd been entrusted with building this new clean team, so he was seen as one of the good guys. He was also exposed by Jeff Dont's book, and he had to confess as well. He had to say that he was instrumental he was one of the the orchestrators behind this doping program that had been going since the 90s and Andreas Schmidt the other doctor as well so it was it was exposed as having been completely rotten um the whole way through and with Ulrich there were two layers to it there was the the Freiburg the internal the team doping organized out of the University of Freiburg and then He'd spent a year away from the team in 2003. He'd been at Bianchi. When he came back in 2004, um, the second layer to his doping was with Fuentes. Shoot, uh, shoot at l'arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast, Team Car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Noom, which is a psychology-based app which helped me to lose quite a lot of weight last year, but much more satisfying is the fact that it's helped me to maintain a healthy weight for a number of months now. I went to the Giro d'Italia for two weeks, and when I came back, I weighed practically what I weighed when I set off, and that's after a couple of weeks of enjoying all the lovely food and wine in Italy. And I think the reason for that is because Noom has helped to embed some sustainable habits and change some of my behaviours slightly. One of the things that I hadn't realised until I started using the Noom app was that I was just eating far too much. I was clearly exceeding the daily calorie allowance as recommended for a man by the NHS significantly and too frequently. And so that's what led to the weight creeping on. And so I had to nudge myself back in the right direction and I don't think I could have done that on my own I needed the new map to kind of show me in black and white exactly what I was eating how many calories I was consuming and just to kind of redraw in my head the idea of what a healthy main meal should look like and also nudge me back towards some healthier snacks in between meals the one thing that really appealed to me was that no food is off limits with Noom 
as long as you look at things in the course of a week or a fortnight or a month you can enjoy all of the things that you normally like to eat it's just about moderation really and that's certainly the message I took from it and as the weight dropped off and I started to feel better I obviously recognised the strength in just being much more aware of what I was eating, when I was eating and why I was eating really. So if you would like to give Noom a try, go to noom.com slash cycle. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash cycle. working for cycling weekly and i only was doing a week of the tour and one of my feature ideas was to ride up out Duez in full <laughs> in full u.s postal kit now we're talking 2001 so the kind of the 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 the, the french-led kind of anti-armstrong sentiment was you know gaining a ground yeah, I mean, 1999 support. So Armstrong's first tour, there'd been a story about the corticosteroid cream, yeah. and he'd sort of he'd sort of come through that um, untarnished to a large to, to to a large degree. And then in 2000, there'd been the story when France TV had followed the U.S. Postal staff and they'd seen them dropping, dumping bags of medicines by the. Um, side of the road and there was this investigation uh, which which established that they'd been using this Actovegin which was actually illegal but it was it was a, a sort of dubious product and then 2001 was the tour when Armstrong was outed as being a client of Michele Ferrari wasn't it by That's David right. Walsh well he got in front of that story didn't he yes, because he did. Walsh had the story and, and con- as a good journalist should contacted Armstrong's entourage for comment and Armstrong spoke to La Gazeta, didn't he? he got the story out first he, he he controlled the narrative so to speak I remember that 2001 season as well Armstrong had said something at the start of the year about how he wasn't going to race in France at all until the tour you know and um, I, it was a funny tour that year wasn't it the the start was strange wasn't it it was low key and um, up in Dunkirk and it didn't really feel like the Tour de France but by the time it got to um Alpes and I was back out there. I mean, the crowds were huge, and I was there in U.S. Postal casquette, jersey, shorts, socks. Even I even had the black shoes that Armstrong favoured at the time, and um, I just wanted to gauge the reaction of the fans as I rode up. And I got in equal part, you know, oh, go Lance, go Lance, and doper, boo, doper, <laughs> and um, it was fascinating, sort of socio. Uh, experiment I suppose of uh, you know the the wisdom of crowds I went round each bend wondering what sort of reaction I was going to get and then of course the stage itself was as I say mind-blowing really when like you couldn't one of those days where you couldn't really take in everything that had happened um, but uh, you know Ulrich had he was on the back foot there wasn't he I mean it was a kind of hammer blow to the chance that he had to win that tour um, and it started to feel at that stage like he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to get the better of Armstrong, really. No, and as I say, he'd been fit coming into that tour. He'd looked really, really good, and still the the result was absolutely emphatic. The victory was absolutely emphatic. And then in two thousand two, um, Ulrich had 
further knee problems. He'd already had knee problems in 1999. You know, some of these knee problems, his coach, his old coach, Peter Becker, his first coach, um, he strongly believes that they were to do with, they were linked to his weight and also his penchant for for riding these huge gears, which, I mean, you'll remember, Lionel, there was a lot of talk about this, and this really started, or it came to a head in 2001, there was an awful lot of talk about the contrast in the styles, Armstrong with this um, this egg beater, um, very fast cadence, and Ulrich with this kind of lumbering, slow cadence, very big gears, and this was often blamed on Peter Becker, and the, there was an assumption that this was the, the uh, dogmatic old modus operandi of east germany peter becker strongly rejects that and he actually said that it was a lot to do with ego and i mean i i make the comparison in the book i draw the parallel between um, a lot of people said this have said this about tiger woods the golfer and his obsession with hitting the ball a long way which then caused him injuries and peter becker thought that Ulrich there was an element of, of machismo and and ego that Ulrich. i mean we, we've all uh, you know those of us who've ridden a bike a little bit you know there is a certain kind of pride there's in being able to push big gears and and appearing powerful and there are those who say that that was the case with Ulrich. anyway he developed knee problems early in 2002 um he went from specialist to specialist and his prospects of riding the tour were pretty pretty bleak and he started going out more i think he was drinking more and there was one night in particular where well he crashed into a bike rack outside freiburg and then tried to sort of well, escape the scene and and this was obviously a very embarrassing incident the police were involved and then shortly after that a few weeks later he was on a night out in munich and a friend a friend who he's never named gave him some kind of mdma pill ecstasy pill amphetamine and the next day he was he was tested um by the german national anti-doping agency and there are various conspiracy theories about that test um, there are even those who say that it was it was mandated by telecom because they wanted him off the books. Um, I put that to a few people in the book or in the course of researching the book, and they're slightly dubious about that. Anyway, the upshot was that Ulrich tested positive. He was sort of put on gardening leave by telecom, and he went for this kind of sabbatical, sabbatical in Canada to kind of get his head straight and reset and when he came back he decided that he didn't want to ride for telecom anymore and he was going to a new team a relatively new team they'd been around for a couple of seasons already but a team that couldn't have been more different from telecom because telecom were this enormous german institution one of the biggest companies in germany they'd been privatized in the 90s and um you know they had the biggest marketing budget in germany um and he was going to this sort of startup team coast which was a, a very small a, a budget high street fashion um chain whose owner seemed to have sort of ideas slightly above his station big ambitions but the team had already had financial issues anyway after a few months at team coast the the bills weren't being paid and Ulrich was well he was in limbo he, he'd been banned for the for the positive doping test and he was due to come back in the April but the team's future was very uncertain and then Bianchi came on board and at the last minute they saved the team and Ulrich himself came back at the start of 2003 
firing on all cylinders. And what was not known at the time was that he'd linked up in his in his period off in those few months when he was banned. He'd linked up with the Italian coach Luigi Cecchini, um, who was infamous at the time. There were two infamous Italian coaches, Michele Ferrari and Luigi Cecchini. They were actually quite different in terms of um, their their approach, I think, um, to coaching also in terms of what had actually what allegations of doping had actually stuck um Cecchini had been investigated once and nothing was ever really found in 1998 anyway Cecchini still didn't have a particularly a particularly good reputation fairly or unfairly in 2003 and Ulrich hadn't told anyone or he hadn't said publicly that he was with Cecchini but he came back being coached by Cecchini and was suddenly riding fantastically and Cecchini actually for the book he I went to see him in Luca it was the first interview he'd done for 17 years and well, yeah we spoke a lot about we spoke over a few hours about Ulrich and that was fascinating what were the headlines from that conversation well <laughs> the 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 consensus not only from Cecchini but also um, other people I spoke to a lot of people who have been coached by Cecchini Tyler Hamilton Thomas Decker Jörg Yaksha was that Ulrich was deeply fond of Cecchini Cecchini is a he's a very sort of mild mannered um, he's a he's quite a wealthy um, stylish um, urbane Tuscan gentleman really with who lives in this beautiful villa just outside Luca. and Ulrich I think was quite taken by all of this he was quite taken by um, the whole environment that he he sort of found in Tuscany, um, you know, typical sort of Italian hospitality. When he went to train with Cecchini, it, it couldn't have been more different from what he'd known in East Germany. You know, the whole family would come out; they'd all sit on this beautiful, you know, around this beautiful table in the garden, and there'd be good wine and good food, and 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 the training was fantastic in Tuscany, and. This had somehow resonated as well as whatever else was going on. What what no one really knew and has never been really firmly established but seems to be seems to be the case was that also in the spring of 2003 Ulrich had started working with Eufemiano Fuentes at more or less the same time that he had been that he'd started working with Cecchini. Now the, quite a lot of space, quite a lot of time in the book is devoted to trying to establish whether those two came as a package Fuentes and Cecchini. The conclusion that I draw and that all of those riders I mentioned earlier encouraged me to draw was that actually Cecchini didn't want anything to do with the doping um, but he was aware of it and he was aware of Fuentes, Fuentes' reputation and what he was doing. And all of the cost of this was being borne by Ulrich? Yes. So we've moved from a kind of almost a state or team-sponsored program into a personal program by this stage. Very much so, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a really fascinating conversion, isn't it? And, and, a, and an indication of how cycling was changing at the time um, and how the kind of the, the windows of opportunity were being narrowed a little bit, perhaps first of all by the um, hematocrit rule, which I know, you know, um, predated a lot of this. But fascinating the journey that Ulrich was on and and where my kind of sympathies with him lie um but then if you want to go head to head with Armstrong presumably he would have known what Armstrong was up to and well this is a really interesting question yeah it's a really interesting question I mean I I asked 
Armstrong and Brunel directly to you know that he was with Fuentes and Armstrong's memory was slightly foggy but he also said to me on numerous occasions there were no secrets we knew everything was going on and he also said that Michele Ferrari knew everything that was going on Michele Ferrari was a great source of intel about Ulrich Ferrari would go to spy on Ulrich um, this was a story I'd never heard before Armstrong said that Ferrari would don a disguise and go to spy on Ulrich for example when he was riding the tour of Switzerland he'd stand at the top of a climb with a I don't know I mean Armstrong literally I think said to me sometimes he might wear a fake moustache or something <laughs> and um, and oh, then he would re- and then he would report back and Armstrong said that Ferrari would know if Ulrich was using one blood bag at the Tour de France two blood bags or three blood bags he never established how Ferrari knew this but he would know and whereas Brunil Johan Brunil told me that he didn't they didn't know that Ulrich was with Fuentes in 2003 and I stress this has not been this is a best guess based on Spanish police documents German police documents but it it, it looks as though Ulrich had his first appointment with Fuentes in the spring of 2003 um, but Brunil said to me had they known it would have been an extra fear factor for them they would have been worried because Brunil had had riders on US Postal who had been with Fuentes and as Brunil put it to me it was definitely a different level with with him now that has to be caveated obviously it's in Armstrong and Brunil's interest to suggest that other riders were at least as bad if not worse than Armstrong um, however you know there was certainly a cavalier side to Fuentes which I don't think was the case with the telecom doctors for example I mean the telecom doctors the story of how that doping program grew is a story that I think can probably be applied across a lot of professional cycling it began with doctors knowing that riders were interested in this substance EPO and other substances they knew that they that the, the resistance was probably going to be futile because the, it made a massive difference to their performances and the riders wanted it and initially that they tried to provide a level of sort of surveillance supervision and and advice you know don't take too much of it essentially or take these precautions and then with in time that evolved and that changed to the point where they were administering it um they were in some in some instances suggesting alternatives and and they became very much actors rather than sort of passive observers and that 2003 tour de france i mean that was the closest tour it got to beating armstrong i mean it was a great tour just looked at you know in terms of the day-to-day that time trial you mentioned at uh, cap de couvert uh, which was uh, well the moment when the possibility of Ulrich winning was well it was alive wasn't it yes and he should have won that tour um, and there were mistakes made really Pevenage's direct support he made big mistakes and he admits them today that the one of the issues in that tour was was Ulrich and particularly more Pevenage's preoccupation with telecom because uh, Alexander Vinokurov was also in with a shout to win that Tour de France and he was um, he was close to Armstrong's yellow jersey. I mean, Armstrong did have the yellow jersey, although he was struggling. I mean, Armstrong said that in that Tour de France, and, and Brunil confirmed this, that there were n- numerous occasions in the first few days where he went back to the team car and to ask whether his brake pads were rubbing or that whether there was a problem with the bottom bracket. He just 
did not feel good at all. And Vinokurov looked as though, I mean, he won the stage in Gap, the famous stage where Belocki crashed and it almost cost Belocki his career. But Vinokurov um, w- w- was one of three riders who looked as though they could win Armstrong, Ulrich and, and, and him. And Pevenage became preoccupied, almost obsessed with beating Telecom, the team from which he and Ulrich had come. And on the stage to Ludonvier, there was a moment on the Pyrrhusord where Armstrong and Ulrich were together and Vinokurov was down the road and Ulrich rode tempo all the way up the climb as one would if their main concern was stopping Vinokurov from winning the tour, winning the stage and winning the tour. And rather than, you know, Armstrong was in the yellow jersey, you always you always make the yellow jersey ride and and then you attack him if you're in Ulrich's position. But there was also a sense during that tour that Armstrong was subpar, um, but he was a bit of a sort of stirring giant. And and there were there were people in Ulrich's team who knew this, who sensed this, who feared it, and they were sort of they were voicing this as well. Look, we have to we have to strike now because if we leave it sooner or later, we're going to find ourselves facing the real Armstrong, the normal Armstrong, the Armstrong we've seen for the previous few years. And sure enough, as they went through the Pyrenees. That's what happened. He was getting slightly better, slightly better. And then they got to the stage over the Tourmalet, finishing at Lusada Den. And it was the old Armstrong. The 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 other the other contributing factor to it to Armstrong sort of being resuscitated, I think, was the crash he had where he tangled with a spectator's musette on the climb to Lusada Den. And I think he got this huge shot of adrenaline. And and it was a a story, a script we'd seen many times before. Uh, Armstrong just looking peerless and looking as though he was riding a a different. Well, he was riding different gears. He was riding at a different pace. He was riding a different climb to Ulrich, and Ulrich suddenly looked leaden, and you know, the same the same as we'd as he'd been for the previous few years. And he looked kind of leaden, really, in comparison for the next couple of years, didn't he? Yeah, then it was an interesting, interesting couple of years, which um, all sort of condensed into one chapter in the book, and it's a a, a, a tale of well, the, the stories of him going back to T-Mobile. It was called T-Mobile, then the name changed, and it was a team that had become bloated on its own, kind of hubris. It became this enormous behemoth, which had, I think, probably the biggest budget in professional cycling. Um, connections in very high places it was sort of fetishized by the by german politicians they you know they were they were invited to training camps on hostel on hospitality junkets and and so on and so forth and the riders by a lot of accounts were quite spoiled and it wasn't the same telecom it was a long way from the telecom that Ulrich had known when he turned professional and and his love for the sport had also started to dwindle. I mean, he'd grown tired of this narrative of him being an underachiever and um, of him not being professional. And it started to become, most people would agree, a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And in fact, you know, Brunel said to me that he thought Ulrich was broken after 2003. He was broken psychologically. And, and although he still finished, you know, he finished third one year and fourth another year, um, 2004, 2005, he wasn't really close again to beating Armstrong. 
And yet, by 2006, after Armstrong had retired, he was one of the two riders most fancied to step in and, and win the Tour de France, the other being Ivan Basso. Yeah, the most extraordinary thing is that in 2005, when Armstrong rode out of the Tour and rode out of cycling, you know, if you'd have said to anyone or if you said to people that um, out of Ulrich and Armstrong, one of those one of those guys had ridden their last Tour de France, um, you know, no one would have said that it was <laughs> yeah. Jan Ulrich. Yeah. And of course, 2006, I mean, Operation Puerto, I mean, it was, it was a, a maelstrom of, uh, of events really that started to accelerate during the Giro d'Italia, wasn't it? When um, arrests started to be made and, and, and the net was closing, the, the Spanish police um, were closing in on Fuentes and the storm that brewed in Strasbourg at the Grand Depart was, was extraordinary. I mean, uh, you know, the, the drama of the Tour de France barely matches that kind of... Uh, I mean, it's not the drama that we necessarily want to see, but at the time, it was extraordinary. There was a sense of every single card collapsing the couple of days before that start. It was extraordinary, Lionel, and there was also an extraordinary backdrop in the sense that the Football World Cup was taking place in Germany, and this was, uh, well, uh, obviously it was it was a huge moment for, it would be a huge moment for any country to host the World Cup, but in Germany it, it took on, held a particular significance because, well, sociologists have pointed to this fact and you know various people confirmed it to me when i spoke to them uh, about 2006 for the book but it was one of the first moments when although germany had been unified in what well, formally unified in 1990 this was one of the first moments when germans really felt proud to be german and there was a huge party which had really taken over the whole country um it didn't really matter whether you were from the east or the west there were german national flags flying in people's gardens which um as one of the interviewees in the book told me prior to that moment would have signified that you were a nazi basically and it was the first time where it was seen as okay to do that so you know that the world cup had started in this atmosphere of almost a kind of embarrassment which which had been sort of lurking in Germany, well, certainly since unification and going way back to the end of the Second World War. I mean, there's a lot about this in the book about how um, Germany has has dealt with the legacy of the Second World War. But, you know, this embarrassment about being German, uh, this, this uncertainty about what it meant to be German... And there were a lot of articles written on the eve of the World Cup about how the World Cup was going to bring these questions into focus and how Germany was effectively going to spend a month on the sort of psychoanalyst couch during the World Cup. And, you know, the first game that the Germans played, the national anthem was sort of this this kind of dirge rang around the stadium and no one sang and the players sang and it was all very muted. And then they, you know, they won a couple of games and the atmosphere sort of improved and then people started to really... Um, you know belt out the national anthem and people started to feel a lot more patriotic and the the team as well they were it was a team of young players who were quite likable they sort of expressed themselves well in interviews and this was just growing this kind of fever was world cup fever was growing and growing and growing and then on the day that Jan Ulrich ended up being kicked out of the Tour de France Germany were playing Argentina 
in the quarterfinal and there were a million people in the um the the, the what what they call the fans mile between the victory column in berlin and the, a big screen that was erected by the brandenburg gate and jan ulrich was where well, he left the hotel in a place called blesheim um close to strasbourg at about i think it was 10 to 7 in the evening and at that almost at that exact moment uh, Miroslav Klozer scored the equaliser for Germany um, against Argentina and they went on to win that game in a penalty shootout and that was the last game they won in that World Cup and they were knocked out in the semi-final but that was the that was the absolute zenith of as I said that sort of that outpouring of of pride and togetherness and you know as one of the players Thomas Hitzelsberger said it was the German equivalent of 1968 the summer of love and you know they were everyone felt proud to be german and and everyone was completely caught up in this football fever and at the same time you had this this guy who had been voted the greatest german sportsman of all time 10 years earlier not 10 years earlier just vanishing completely vanishing he exited the stage then and he was never seen at a bike race again well that was what i was going to say because my memory of that in strasbourg was that ulrich and telecom went quietly Whereas Basso and CSC and Reese, they kind of kicked their their feet. They were kicking and screaming, being dragged out of the Tour de France. They gave the sort of hand-wringing press conference and tried to to be reinstated. And um, whereas Ulrich left with some dignity. I mean, I found that at the time quite incredible because clearly it was sort of an admission of guilt, but also an admission that, yeah i'm guilty and i'm 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 tired of this life really that's how i interpreted it at the time you know he just disappeared from cycling there and then yeah and he was he was in incredible form that summer and he was convinced he was going to win the tour and he was actually going to he was going to retire he was going to win the tour and retire he hadn't told anyone this or he hadn't said it publicly but he did just completely disappear and it wasn't it wasn't reported at the time but there were lots of conversations about a confession he in the meantime well in 2004 he'd split up with his long-term girlfriend and he was now with um, the the sister of a of a teammate or a former teammate Tobias Steinhauser and there were there were conversations with his partner then at the time about a confession there were even com- it could have come as early as one of the rest days in that Tour de France there was a plan afoot to hold some kind of press conference and, and to admit everything but they decided not to do that and this was the first of a series of rough plans going on for years there were interviews that were done and they were ready to be published where he admitted everything and they were pulled at the last minute and 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 to this day to this day he has never really laid everything out and and explained everything about what happened the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science thank you very much to science in sport for supporting the cycling podcast you can get 25 percent off everything at scienceinsport.com with the code siscp25 science in sport has everything you need to fuel your ride before during and after so that's to improve your performance and aid your recovery energy bars energy gels tablets that mix up into drinks powders such as the beta fuel 
go to scienceinsport.com, browse through the products and fill up your basket and use the code SISCP25. So Ulrich exited the stage quietly but also dramatically in 2006 and then really wasn't seen until 2015. There were were rumours and... But he didn't really, he had no public profile at all in that period. Not really. I mean, he was almost living in self-imposed exile. He'd, he'd moved to Switzerland in 2003, uh, as a lot of German riders have done, well, had done before and have done since. Um, th- there are tax advantages, but they're also, you know, it's a great place to train. And that kept him, that helped to keep him out of the public eye in Germany he'd given this absolutely disastrous retirement press conference so he, he decided there'd been rumours about him where he certainly tried to contest um, the, the, the the allegation he certainly tried to defend himself against the allegations of doping um, the, the 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 main allegation obviously being that he was a client of Eufemiano Fuentes this was before Jeff Dont's memoirs had been published because they were published in the spring of 2007. So we're talking about the last months of 2006. It was all to do with Fuentes and Operation Puerto. And, you know, there were there were various... The, the, the allegations were coming out from various directions. There was the, the Federation, there was a sporting side of it, and there was also a judicial side to it. But despite that he maintained that he was innocent he was still talking about coming back he was still training to a certain extent but then the the german police were demanding they demanded a a saliva sample that was going to be compared it was going to be cross-referenced with the blood bags found in in um, spain and the writing really was on the wall i mean he was he was kind of banged to rights at that point and then in february of 2007 he gave up this press conference the retirement uh, announcement which to this day is a lot of germans abiding memory of ulrich it was a bit of a disaster it was just a it was a half hour monologue and it was a rant um you know it started with him saying that he was pleased to see some people in the room but there were the black sheep who he'd rather had stayed away and it continued very much in that vein and it was very fractious and then from that press conference he went on to one of germany's top most popular um tv chat shows um it's a, a show called beckman and the front man is a guy called reinhold beckman and this again ulrich thought that this was going to be an opportunity for him to get off his chest whatever he wanted to what he hadn't been told was that he was going to be grilled or he was going to be asked about doping he thought he wasn't there were going to be no very naively he thought there weren't going to be any questions about doping and he was asked i think the first question was what do you consider to be doping? And he fell silent for 10, 15 seconds, sort of looked to the ceiling and hesitated, stammered and gave a terrible, terrible answer, which, as I say, is a lot of Germans abiding memory of Jan Ulrich. And that really set the tone for the next few years. Whenever, uh, on the rare occasions when he spoke to the press or when he was seen in public, there was a sense, there was a mutual sense of embarrassment both on his part and the part of of whoever it was he was speaking to. And there was no way for him to really 
reinvent himself or exist in the public eye. And obviously that created, I think, probably financial issues. Um, you know, he still had to earn a living. And in the meantime, there were lots of legal issues arising from both initially Operation Puerto and then post two thousand spring of 2007, everything that was coming out about Freiburg. And in the process of writing the book, did you try to... Sp- did you speak to Ulrich? Did you try to speak to Ulrich? Does he know the book's been written? So in 2015, I went to see his agent in a place called... We had a meeting in a place called Gutersloh um, in the middle, well, the sort of north middle of Germany. And I explained what I was doing. And it wasn't a very fruitful meeting. I'd obviously gone there to sort of ask for an interview and he'd, he'd talked about the other plans that they had for a film and other interviews. And, and you know, there was talk of me possibly having to pay for an interview with Jan. And, and I hoped that we would eventually get around it. We never did. And then I started to interview other people and there were quite a lot of people who asked for Ulrich's blessing to do the interview so he did, he was aware then that I was writing this book and he gave his blessing to everyone as far as I know there were a lot of people who who declined um, to speak to me who didn't want to speak to me for the book but whenever as far as I know whenever Ulrich was consulted he said it's fine but this was pre-2018 um, and so there are really two phases of kind of researching the book before 2018 this disastrous summer that he had and and post and then since then um well again he sort of disappeared i think as i said before the events of the summer of 2018 i think most people are aware of of some of the details of breaking into a neighbor's garden was supposedly under the influence of drugs and alcohol and then uh, an alleged assault um of a woman in uh, frankfurt um then after that, there was another period that's been really, uh, since then, another period of total kind of blackout, um, total information blackout. Not many people know anything about what's happened since then. Um, there have been a few stories that he's been doing better, um, that he'd moved back to the Black Forest where he'd lived for years with his first long-term girlfriend, Gabby. And, well in the last few months i've had to do a very sort of delicate dance again also trying to weigh up in my own mind and trying to reconcile with myself um why i was writing this book and and whether it was going to cause him any problems because i'm very well aware of the fact that after 2018 i mean there were people various people told me that they didn't think he would make it through that summer and and by all accounts since then it's been very precarious at times you know he's had highs and lows and um the the situation is still evolving so since then yeah i've been talking to people in what he's now his entourage and these are people who are not really known um to to most cycling fans they're they're old friends um there's a gentleman called mike baldinger who's a former um motorcyclist a former professional motorcyclist who he's been friends with for for many many years since he was first in the black forest in the 90s and he has almost taken Ulrich into his kind of care and and tutelage and i've been in contact with them quite a lot and been getting um sort of information about what's happening and also again trying to assess for my own purposes and for my own kind of conscience what it was responsible to 
to say, to write, and and how how to go about this sort of last phase. So we're talking about the last, well, the epilogue of the book, really. Um, how to go about it in an intellectually honest, but also sensitive way. And again, you know, in March of this year, so I went down to the Black Forest to where Jan is now living, and I met. Mike Baldinger who as I said is really his guardian angel now and and Mike said to me you know he would have loved for Jan to to come and and do an interview that day but again it was quite a delicate time Um, there were a few issues this winter again with there was an incident in Cancun in Mexico which um, was was reported in the press but um, only with very vague details but you know the bottom line is this is not it's not a happy story with and it's not a happy ending yet um yeah we 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 all sort of hope anyone who has any kind of affection for Jan Ulrich and what he achieved or anyone with any sort of sense of decency will will hope that there, there is going to be a happy ending eventually but it's not we're not at that point yet um i think it's a hopeful ending things are going better for him um but he's not completely out of the woods I don't think The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney